Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Well, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to actually be with a tour in the Middle East and had a chance to kind of stand in the shadow of Jerusalem. And I said, I can't think of a better place to prep a Good Friday service than right here. And so it was kind of fun for me to be on that path that Jesus would have walked on the day that we commemorate. And although I've been familiar with the story and heard it dozens of times growing up, one of the questions I keep asking is, why was the crowd that welcomed Jesus so ecstatic? Like they'd seen him before, They'd met him before. He'd been in Jerusalem before. What, what made this day different? What made people ready to leap out of their skin with excitement and energy? And I think the reason might be is that on this day, Jesus was announcing himself as a new kind of king. And so we're going to kind of take that thought and follow it all the way through a number of different scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, do me a favor, raise your hand. Our team would be more than happy to bring one down. Every time I get to a passage, the number, the corresponding page number for the Bible that you have is going to be up on the screen. I'm going to cover a lot of ground, so don't, don't feel obligated to make it to every single passage. But I think we're going to kind of have a, an interesting insight into the kind of king that Jesus was saying that he was as he approached the city. So the very first passage that we're going to look at is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. It reads like this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tie there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And like in, in Hebrew, it would have meant, why are you stealing my donkey? Uh, they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to the Lord Jesus. They threw their, colts, their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. For all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So what makes this moment special? It's because Jesus is announcing himself as a new kind of king. A king who pursues peace over power. A king who pursues people over policy. And a king who pursues the prophetic over the popular. So that, that first thought. A new kind of king values peace over power. Keep in mind, the people who live in Jerusalem have really only had experience with two kinds of rulers. One is King Herod. And if you know the, the Christmas story, you know that Herod was so drunk on power... So paranoid that somebody was going to come and take and steal his throne that he ordered the execution of all male children under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem. So some scholars say that as many as two dozen baby boys were massacred that day. And if you, stood on the, if you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look left, you can actually see a hilltop fortress called Herodium. And not only would Herod have had kind of digs in Jerusalem, but he also would have had a palace there. And so everywhere that people looked on the skyline, there were representations, there were reminders that they were underneath Herod's thumb. And not only did they know Herod, but they knew this other guy by the name of Pilate. Pilate was a direct representative of the Romans. If you look at a map of ancient Jerusalem, you'll see that there's the Temple Mount where people would go to worship. And on the edge of it, there was a major military complex of four-towered 
kind of fortress, a garrison, where the Romans could look down and observe the people as they worshiped just to make sure that nothing got out of hand. So not only were the Romans kind of casting a shadow over the Jews' nationalistic dreams, not only were they interrupting their worship per se, but they, like Herod, were masters in efficient torture and cruelty. When, when we come to the Easter moment, we think of like kind of three crosses on this gentle slope. When the Romans massacred people, some historians say that not only did they crucify them by the dozens, there's some records of the Romans crucifying people by the hundreds. And so the only kind of ruler, the only kind of king that the people are used to are these despots, these dictators, these authoritarian emperors who will spare no cost to make sure that the people stay in their place. And it's against this backdrop of the abuse of power that Jesus comes riding into town on a, on a donkey. Now, the very first king of Jerusalem under the Jewish kind of history was David. And David's son, Solomon, when he was coronated as king, came riding into town on a donkey. So the choice of a donkey is significant and it's strategic. Because when people see a, Jesus riding in on a donkey, they know that he is coming in the order of David's descendant, his son Solomon. Now think of all of the different majestic animals that you could ride into. Like right in history, we've got Hannibal the Great like riding in on elephants. We've got other kings riding in on horses. Have you ever noticed that National Geographic has never once done a special on donkeys? Not once. Like you think of majestic animals. Donkey never, it's not going to make the top five. Horses, you know, Clydesdales, these amazing beasts that always make the Super Bowl commercials. And horses, we've got Arabian stallions, and we've got wild mustangs. And in the scriptures, whenever a king needed to impress somebody, he would import horses from Egypt. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. If you want to intimidate somebody, that's always the wrong choice. <laughs> Why is it significant? Jesus chooses the donkey as the fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12 say this, Regrace, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. They're saying the Messiah will bring those two paradoxes. It will, will be a paradox. They can combine righteousness and power, but they can also combine humility and meekness. On a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I love that line, you prisoners of hope. Jesus is saying, up until this moment in your history, you have been prisoners of despair and prisoners of fear and prisoners of grief. But today, when you, when you ascend back into the city of Jerusalem with me, you're gonna become prisoners of hope. Jesus is saying, I am coming to bring restoration, to bring healing, to bring change. Why doesn't Jesus ride in on a chariot? Why doesn't Jesus come in on a war horse? Because he doesn't need one. Jesus has nothing to prove to anybody, and all of the victories that he cares about will not be won with a sword. Jesus could come in riding in on a tank, but he doesn't. He comes rolling in in somebody's old Ford Focus because he doesn't care. 
and the fact that Jesus would come in under the umbrella of peace and not under the posture and the clothing and the drama and the choreography of power was a bold statement to anybody who was watching because the choice of a donkey said, I'm not above you, I'm among you. And that image warmed their hearts. It was a different picture of power and authority and sovereignty that they had ever seen. And it made an immediate, emotional, visceral connection with every single one of them. And because Jesus is coming, declaring peace, the people are singing, there is peace in heaven. Jesus was a new kind of king. He values peace over power. He's a new kind of king. He values people over policy. He values people over policy. The crowd is praising God because of the miracles that they have seen, and not just any miracles, miracles with historic significance. So our guide on this trip, is, his name was Habib Boutros. He was saying, when you look back at the history of Jerusalem, you can know why Jesus chose to do some of the very dramatic and public kinds of miracles that he did in the city of Jerusalem. He had all sorts of miracles in all sorts of places, but the miracles that he does in the city of Jerusalem matter. And he goes, so in order to kind of capture why these are significant, we need to roll all the way back to when David first captured the city of Jerusalem. This is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says that David, who has already ruled Israel for seven years in Hebron, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame could ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now the city of David. So the Canaanite king is using the downtrodden and the marginalized as a means to antagonize David. He's using the blind and the lame and the poor as a punchline for his joke. And when I imagine the scene, I can, I can actually see the king of the Jebusites parading out the blind and the lame and the downtrodden and positioning them on the wall. Now, can you, can, you be, can you imagine being a person who is already fighting a daily battle for your own dignity and then to be shamed publicly by being dragged out not just in front of your city but even your opponents? That whole line about the blind and the lame is significant not just for the pagans, it's significant for the Jews. Because what do we read in the book of Leviticus? We read that only people who are considered physically whole would have the privilege of serving before God in the tabernacle or, in event, or eventually in the temple. We read this in Leviticus chapter 21. Moses said, no man who has any defect may come close to God. No man who is blind or lame, there it is again, disfigured or deformed. Because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the presence of God, or approach the altar, and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So the pagans don't value the hurting because they are weak, but the Jewish culture doesn't value them because they are considered incomplete and unclean. So when Jesus wants to make a statement about what kind of kingdom he is announcing, what does he do? He blesses the broken. He goes out of his way to connect personally with who? The blind and the lame. He turns the whole mentality of what it means to be whole, to be clean, to be accepted, and flips it on its head. Two of Jesus' most public miracles that are recorded in the book of John, after he turns water into wine at Cana, are to what? 
heal a lame man and to heal a blind man. Let's look at how he does it. John chapter 5 says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who had been there was in, had been invalid for 38 years, his whole life. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else always goes down ahead of me. So the tradition with the pool was that an angel would come and stir the water. And if you were the first one in, you got that day's healing. Well, you can imagine how everybody would have been camped out exactly on the edge of the water, right? Listen to what Jesus asks him. He asks him a very direct question. He says, do you want to get well? It's a point blank question requiring a yes or no answer. And what does the guy do? He fumbles. He goes, well, Lord, it's hard for me to get down to the water. And Jesus goes, I never asked you about the water. All I asked was, do you want to get well? Why? Because Jesus has means of answering our prayers and our problems that we have not yet considered. And so the only question that Jesus is asking is, would you like me to intervene in this situation? If the answer is yes, then God gets to decide how that miracle transpires. And what I love is Jesus' very best answer was, get up and walk. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. Now the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. What's the law for Sabbath? You can do no work. Can't do any work at all. In fact, if you go to Israel to this day, observant Jews actually have two sets of elevators in tourist hotels. There's the regular hotels for the people who are Gentiles who are not a, a, elevator, for the people who are Gentiles and non-observant Jews. But the other, ho- the other elevator is called the Sabbath elevator. And did you know that the Sabbath elevator stops on every single floor of the hotel? Why? Because for you to push the button means that you are operating a machine. And for you to operate a machine constitutes work. So the laws for Sabbath breaking in that day and in this one are very strict. And this guy has just been healed and Jesus told Jesus, the master of the Sabbath, told him to break the Sabbath by carrying his sleeping bag back home. And the Jewish leaders saw the man who had been healed and they said, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Nobody says, congratulations, you've been healed of paralysis. They said, you're breaking the rules. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. It's not my fault. Some dude told me to do it. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Jesus heals somebody, and he does it on the Sabbath, and he does it on purpose. Why? To remind everybody who is, who's watching that Jesus values compassion more than he values the code, that he values people over policy. And there's an interesting footnote here. Jesus has healed him physically, but he hasn't experienced a physical, uh, spiritual transformation yet. So Jesus said, hey, I'm glad that you can walk. That was my gift to you. But until the brokenness in your heart is healed, you're still spiritually paralyzed. And he goes, and if you don't come back to me, something worse will happen to you than the failure to be able to use your legs. Why? Because Jesus presents 
a whole picture healing. He doesn't want to just heal our bodies. He wants to heal our hearts. He wants to sanctify our minds. He wants to bring our souls back to a state of right standing with his Father. We read this in John 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he had been born blind? Can you imagine being the blind man? You're like, I'm right here. I can hear you talking. And they're like, who screwed up, his parents or this guy? The disciples didn't have the compassion, the empathy, or the humanity to embrace him as somebody who was an equal, somebody who was created in the image of God, somebody who God cared for deeply. All they could see was a theological conundrum, a problem to be solved. This was like a, a rabbi story problem. Train A, leave station B. Like, they're like, this is fascinating. And Jesus goes, time out. Neither this man sinned, because for him to have sinned, he would have had to commit a sin in utero. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Imagine the kind of God that would punish an unborn child for a sin that they committed before they were conscious for the rest of their life. He goes, this man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. He goes, this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. He goes, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on this man's eyes. Now, why is this significant? Jesus could have just spit directly into his face. He didn't. He spit onto the ground and he made mud. When Jesus made mud, what's he doing? He's doing work. What day is it? It's a Sabbath. He's breaking the rules again. Why? Because he cares about people more than he cares about the policy. And he puts the mud on his eyes and then he says, I want you to go down to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, saying, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where's this man, they asked him. I, I don't know, he said. Here's what I learned about the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam is a pool that you can still visit the ruins of to this day, at the bottom of the hill outside of Jerusalem. So you can see it in the bottom right-hand corner of this picture. See that? See the city wall? And then there's that light blue rectangular square. What would happen is that pilgrims who are going to worship would wash. They would ritually cleanse themselves in that pool, and then they would hike up the hill up to where those domes were on the temple, uh, on the temple mount, and they would go and worship God in the temple. Now, if you were blind your whole life, you were considered an outsider. You didn't get to come to the temple. Why? Because you were incomplete and unclean. And so when Jesus says, I want you to wash in the pool where other people wash so they can go to the temple, what is Jesus saying? He goes, you've got a clean bill of health. You're allowed to come back, or in his case, you're allowed to come into the presence of God at the temple for the, for the first time. Another historical record said that this is the pool where the priests, the priests had their own washing statements, uh, stations in the temple courtyards, but if they had come into contact with a dead body, if they had attended the funeral of a loved one, they were unclean, and so they couldn't even enter the temple complex, so what they would do is they would come to the pool of Siloam, and they would cleanse, and then they could go back to the temple. These waters, in some circles, were considered to be the bridge from uncleanliness to cleanness, from death to life, from brokenness to wholeness. 
Jesus is taking somebody who was an outsider, who felt incomplete, who had been chastised and pushed away and welcoming him back into the family. Why? Because Jesus values people over policy. He values peace over power. And finally, he values the prophetic because Jesus is operating in the tradition of the prophets. And the prophets always tell the people of Jerusalem things that they don't want to hear so that they can find their way back home to God. And Jesus values the prophetic over the popular. Only a new kind of king would value the prophetic over the popular. An old kind of king, a traditional king, is going to do what? He's going to do whatever it takes to keep the masses quiet. He'll intimidate them with fear. He'll bribe them with toys and games. You always hear that the reason that the Romans built the Colosseum is to kind of entertain people into submission. And a king who needs to keep the people down will never upset them to the point that they would want to revolt. Because a revolution, a lot of kings, they can deal with war, but they can't, they can't deal with civil unrest. They can't deal with the threat of a revolution. So as a king, you try to keep the waters calm. You scare the people when you have to, and you bribe them when need be. But Jesus won't do either. He's not gonna intimidate them. He came in riding on a donkey. But at the same time, he's not gonna coddle them. He's not gonna cater to them. He's not gonna stroke their egos when there is a difficult truth that they need to hear. This is a good day. Jesus is on top of the world. All he needs to do is to continue to bask in the glory of the people, ride that donkey all the way up to the palace and let them crown him king. That's all that has to happen. All he has to do is smile and nod and give the nice little Miss America wave all the way up the hill and it's over. That's not what he does. Jesus completely bails on the script and does something that nobody anticipates. We find it recorded here in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As they approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Rather than don the crown or pop his jersey, Jesus buries his face in his hands and weeps. He said, if you, even you, he's talking to the people of Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What do they think is going to bring them peace? Military conquest. They don't want a new kind of king. They want the same kind of king that Pilate and Herod are. They just want that king to be on their side. And Jesus is saying gently but firmly, you still don't get it. On this day, if you would only know what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus said, there's a problem with your worldview. You keep thinking that everything that is broken is on the outside of you. You keep thinking that it's the system that's broken, that it's the Pharisees that are broken and the Romans that are broken and the politics that are broken and you keep waiting for me to change your circumstances. But I wanna speak to your soul and until you can have the courage and the self-awareness to say, Lord Jesus, I'm broken. We, the people of Jerusalem, have lost our way in our greed and in our fear and in our nationalism and our insecurity. And 
We don't know who we are. We don't know which way is up. Will you help us? He goes, if you could say that, there would be hope for you as a, as a town, but you can't, so there's not. And if you know the, the history of Jerusalem after the Bible is completed, you know that just one generation later, everything that Jesus prophesied on Palm Sunday becomes true. And you can go and visit the, the ancient ruins of Jerusalem today and see that not one of the major stones that constructed this temple, temple complex are still intact on top of one another. In just one short week, one short week, Jesus comes from being the hero of the story to being the goat, from being on the top to being on the bottom, to be an almost king, to being jeered and mocked as he dies as a common criminal. What happened? What caused these same group of people to completely turn, to make a 180 degree turn on Christ? It's because Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. And Jesus would not agree to their agenda and he wouldn't do what they wanted, when they wanted it, and how they wanted it done. And they said, if that's the king that you are, we don't want you. A lot of times we want Jesus to make our lives a little bit more convenient, a little bit more fun. We want Jesus to just kind of rubber stamp whatever it is that we've already come up with for a great plan for our existence. Um, and if, my guess is if you've walked with Jesus for more than five minutes, you know that he very rarely will agree to your terms. Jesus loves us. And because he loves us, he's gonna tell us the truth. And sometimes the truth is that we are not completely honest about where we have wandered away from him. And we're not being clear about the consequences of the choices that we keep making independently of Christ. And as a result, we're having a hard time finding this peace that he promises. And rather than embrace Christ as king, we elevate other people as king or other systems as king or we elevate ourselves as king and we keep getting results that just aren't working out for us well. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He goes, and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you, truth will set you free. But if we wanna be a prisoner of hope, like Zechariah spoke of, we have to be able to hear the truth, even the hard truth. Now, there's one more image that I wanna share with you and that's this. If you stand outside of the city of Jerusalem and you look from the Mount of Olives towards what's called the Eastern Gate, you'll see that there's something curious about it. See that little bar at the top? Sorry, I'm not a great photographer. I took this one. Uh, there's this little gate at the top, and you'll see that there are two archways. They kind of have like moss growing underneath them. Both of them are filled with stone. Why? Because an army of people who overtook the city heard a rumor that the king of the Jews is gonna come back. And when he came, he was gonna come down from the Mount of Olives on this path that Jesus is on and up through the Eastern Gate. And because they wanted no part of this Messiah and no part of this king, because they already liked the system that they had, what did they do? They walled off the very same gates the Messiah was supposed to come through. And every single one of us has a choice to make. Why? Because every day is Palm Sunday. Every day, Jesus comes walking the path to our heart saying, I'm coming in gentleness. I'm coming in healing. And I'm coming in truth. I want to give you the gift of myself. And you and I have a choice to make. We can either wall off that gate or we can take off our cloaks and put them on the street and say, Lord, welcome. 
See, my guess is that if you're at all like me, you're here because your spirit's curious, or you're here because you have a desire, a burn, or you want to kindle a burn to allow Jesus Christ to reign over every square inch of your existence. But most of us have a corner of our kingdom or a room in our heart or terrain in our mind that is still walled off to the Prince of Peace and to the King of Kings. And on this Palm Sunday and on tomorrow and the next day and on Wednesday, Jesus is saying, I want to come to you in humility. I want to come to you in compassion. I want to come to you in truth. Will, will you let me be a new kind of king? And some of us, our hearts are trembling with fear because the image that we have of God is one that's detached and one that's cruel and one that's imposing. That's not who Jesus is. He's a new kind of king. He comes in riding in on a colt. And some of us, our hearts are broken. And we're just kind of stuck in the dust of despair. Uh, We're afraid to get our hopes up for fear that they'll only be disappointed again. But Jesus is a new kind of king. Jesus specializes in restoring the broken. And if he can heal those who are literally blind and lame, he can heal whatever it is that's broken within us too. So some of us, our hearts are trembling. Some of us, our hearts are broken. Some of us, our hearts are hard. It's the grind of life the press of our existence, the wound of others have kind of closed and barricaded us off to the love of those who care about us and the love of our creator. And Jesus wants to say, the truth is, I can can melt down those walls. I can take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I can take your sarcasm and I can replace it with praise. Will you trust me? So I wanna pray for us as the team comes up to close us out in song and celebration and ask God to give us a fresh vision, clarity of perspective that allows us to see not just the king that, he wish, that we wish he would be, but the king that he says he is. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you shatter all of our expectations, that you refuse to arrive into our lives or into our hearts or into our, t- our town on our terms. You come on yours and yours alone because your wisdom is perfect and your heart is pure and your words are gracious and your justice is right. And God, we're hungry for a new kind of king. When we have tried to reign and rule over our own lives, our own businesses, and our own families, and our own dreams, we keep, we keep getting sideways and we miss out on your heart and the gift that you long to give. So God, today I pray that in the strong name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would just, you would push down all of our defenses. That your kindness would win us over and lead us to times of repentance. That your mercy would lead us back to you. That your compassion would pull us into your heart. And that your truth would set us free from the lies that we have settled for for oh, far too long. In these moments, Lord, reveal to us who you truly are and allow us to welcome you with the praise that you deserve. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.